Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 10, 9. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Three. Not because they are easy. Two. But because they are hard. One. Zero. KFI presents. Cool Space News with your host, Rod Pyle. Hello and welcome once again to Cool Space News, the unprecedented third interview installment with Jay Galantine edition. Yes, Jay had much to say, all but fascinating in my humble opinion. So here's the last segment. But before we hear from him, let's look at some of the Cool Space news in the last couple of weeks. Youthful rings. While I bemoan the rings under my eyes each morning as a sign of encroaching old age, Saturn's rings are apparently an indicator of youth and are not as old as we had thought. While the gorgeous apparitions were long thought to be at least 4 billion years old and composed of a collection of cosmic junk either left over from a failed moon or one that broke up, a recent analysis of data from the last leg of Cassini's long mission to Saturn says otherwise. A team of scientists led by a gentleman from the University of Rome studied the data collected from Cassini's final daredevil passages between the planet and its innermost ring as it closed in on its death dive into the planet last year, and they found something interesting. By measuring the gravitational tug on the spacecraft by the rings during successive passes, they were able to gauge the mass of the rings and infer their purity, which is about 99%. By then calculating how long it would take for the rings to become 1% impure, the researchers were able to derive an age for the rings, and that age is, wait for it, 10 to 100 million years. So about the time the dinosaurs were taking their last steps on Earth, the rings may have been forming. Sherlock Holmes could not have done better. Look out below! Japan launched a rocket on January 17th that carried a satellite designed to test various techniques useful in future space exploration, including new solar panel designs, new kinds of rocket motors, and a new star tracker system designed for space navigation. But it also carried six little CubeSats, each smaller than a shoebox. These CubeSats contained artificial meteors, little balls about one-third of an inch in diameter, that will plunge into the Earth's atmosphere, creating a man-made meteor shower. Yes, you heard it correctly, an artificial meteor shower. Somebody was willing to spend money on that. While there will be some scientific interest in this event, like learning more about how meteors enter the atmosphere and the trajectories, the company that sponsored the CubeSats, Astrolive Experiences in Japan, aims to create Shooting Stars on Demand, a first world project if ever I've heard of one. The Shooting Star show will be visible over Japan and nearby areas. The composition of the pellets is a trade secret, but the company assures us they are non-toxic. For what that's worth, I wasn't actually worrying. You can look for many more such entertainment-oriented space technologies, likely including orbital advertising visible from Earth in the near future. I think a lot of us have mixed feelings about that, but be prepared for a Coca-Cola billboard passing overhead sometime soon. A final opportunity. As we apparently bid farewell to NASA's plucky opportunity Mars rover, it's been called plucky by just about everybody who's talked about it since 2004, we also mark its 15th anniversary on the Red Planet. 
Opportunity landed in 2004 and drove almost 30 miles over its long life, uncovering a vast trove of Martian secrets, including some of the best information we've gleaned about the early presence of water on the planet. But last May, a giant global dust storm whipped up, and the solar-powered rover could no longer get enough sunlight to recharge its batteries and keep its heaters running. It apparently went into hibernation mode to wait out the storm, as it was designed to do, but that storm raged for months, longer than the rover's remaining power supply could keep it heated and ready to return to action. When the storm cleared, controllers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory started pinging the machine to awaken it, but to no avail. Efforts to awaken opportunity will continue for some time, but it appears that Mars's longest-serving machine has met its end. Happy 15th anniversary, Opportunity. Your service will be missed. A golden anniversary. Of the many ways you can celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 this year, one is numismatic in nature. That's a hard word. Try saying that three times quickly. Numismatic, numismatic, numismatic. After years of wrangling over proper design, the U.S. Mint has issued a gold half-dollar coin commemorating America's first human landing on the moon. This unique coin is curved on both sides. The front side is a dome shape, a rendering of the reflected image of Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong's visor from the iconic photo taken the first moonwalk. And on the other side, which is concave, we see Buzz Aldrin's equally iconic bootprint on the lunar surface. While gold coins are certainly more expensive than its half-dollar indication, they're just over $400. A gold-plated version is only $26, so get them while they're hot. A violent beginning for life on Earth. After pondering the role of meteorites and asteroids in the delivery of the elements necessary to kickstart life on Earth for decades, scientists have run over a billion computer simulations of the mass needed for the proper conditions to occur, and have concluded that about 4.4 billion years ago, something the size of Mars probably smashed into our still young world, delivering enough carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur to allow the little squigglies that evolved into us to form. This collision also likely formed the moon and delivered it into its permanent orbit. So it's sad news for the protoplanet that Earth gobbled up, but good news for us. Let's just hope that another one doesn't come along and reverse the favor. That's all the space news that's fit to print this week. Now let's get back to Johnny J. Galantine and hear the conclusion of my interview. Van Allen sort of lamented to me how things used to be so simple that you could write a four-page proposal and get an instrument on board a, a probe to Jupiter just by saying something along the lines of, we will investigate the environment. And these days you need 20 people from educational institutions all over the world who put together this grand slam proposal and it's broken down into these 20 little slivers where Mr. X is going to do this with the radio occultation and Mr. Y is going to do the section about the neutrons. And it's just way too complicated. But you you have to have this massive proposal in, in order to get funded. So it's it's kind of a shame. And this is, I assume, largely risk aversion on NASA's part. Well, it's it's stuff is so expensive and everybody wants to have this this big one shot deal and the the opportunities for flight don't come up that often and so i mean something like the the mars insight lander here i mean how long were those instruments in development yeah. uh there's one lander it's not part of a series it's not the insight program it is the insight lander in the singular and i haven't 
checked, but there's probably something on the order of uh, 10 to 12 experiments on there. And those people were were jockeying for whatever advantage they had to to try and get on there. I mean, there were probably, this is just speculation, but you know, probably hundreds of proposals for something like 10 to 12 slots. Uh, again, just just my my perception of it. And so you've you've got to have something that is just going to be knock your socks off great. Yeah, and 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 it's worth mention that that often these things are in contention for as, as long as a decade. I mean, people have been developing their ideas and pitching things and putting them together for years and years and you're right, it's because it is so expensive. I was talking to um Rob Manning who I know you know and have spoken to before a few weeks ago. Yeah. Wonderful guy. And I said, we were talking about, I just written some stuff about the, uh, the Indian Mars orbiter mission. And I said, I said, really, was it like $40 million? And he said, yeah, yeah, it's a lot cheaper when you, when you work overseas. And I said, so when does NASA get to the point where it just starts outsourcing hardware and then running the mission? Because I mean, we're talking a 10th or less of what it would cost to do it domestically. And he smiled and said, yeah, that's well, a great question. Yeah. Well, and I expected kind of a shrug and he said, well, we're actually just starting that process right now. I said, really? He said, yeah, he said, wow. I, said, I can't talk a lot more about it, but, but yeah, that's, that's, that's in the making. He said, and of course, you know, Rob, he can't end any story with just an answer like that. Right. He said, and by the way, it's really fantastic. It's really fascinating. I said, what, what, what? And he said, uh, <laughs> that the, uh, at least of the, of the, work they had done so far. So for instance, Magdalene, the, the Mars mission, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing right, but that's how it looks, was in terms of the fabrication and the engineering, at least some component of it was 80% female workforce, which is not something you see here. Okay. Part of that is because they're certain elements of their society are very progressive and another part is because women get paid less in that program but yeah. one way or the other you know it, it's a, it's an opportunity and boy does it make things easier so my point here being you can get back this idea of maybe being a little more free with risk and i'd say the other thing that that looks good for that is the two cubesats they sent along with insight the marco cubesats which were just a flyby and they were primarily there as an experiment to see if they could communicate real time landing heartbeat from the uh from the landers that went down but they worked and they're still working so if we can start using cubesat size units and with equivalent price reductions both in fabrication and in uh, cheaper launch because of the reduced mass and so forth now you can start taking chances again and it feels a little bit like the ranger mariner early mariner days you know where you had a little more opportunity okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...for risk on these programs. Right, right. And that's a, an essential element to discovery, I think, because you don't know what you're going to find. Yeah, that's true. And 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 this risk being able to do things for, for a lot less money would allow us to take much greater chances. Um, now, uh, I wanted to get on to my next question, which is uh, the one I think 
most of us in this business kind of groan when we hear, because on the one hand, we have a real answer, but on the other hand, we're not always sure we could give it, should give it rather, which is, do you have a favorite planetary exploration program? It's like a kid's question. Hey, mister, what's your favorite? But I know I have one. What's yours? Boy, I'm real curious to know what yours is. And I know you're not going to tell me until I tell you what mine is. Uh I was not expecting this question. And so I'm not sure how to respond. (laughs) Do, Do I have a favorite? Well... If I had to tell you, I suppose if I had to pick something, which apparently I do, I would probably say it was Lunacod. Really? And that would not the, have been my guess. That's interesting. <laughs> and and so for the benefit of the listeners, mm-hmm. this was a, a program that unfortunately is all but forgotten that was uh, put forth by the Soviet Union. They landed two ugly eight-wheeled rovers on the surface of the moon in the early 1970s and they were remotely controlled by a five-person team of operators from a top secret town in the middle of crimea and the rovers worked very very well and and there were so many things that that the soviets had to work out from scratch i mean controlling a rover in real time that is almost a quarter million miles away i mean that's something that that well the chinese have done it again but i mean nobody had duplicated that for decades and decades and just how do we do this and having a a five-person team that is operating as an organic whole to not only control this thing but to perform real research a program of exploration that you could never have done with apollo i mean to drive this thing not quite non-stop but basically every day for for months on end i mean you you couldn't have done that with apollo landers uh to not only conduct these experiments but to uh, create very detailed maps of the lunar surface as you were doing so, um, not only by looking at the terrain and sketching it out and measuring craters and whatnot, but the rovers had these uh, sensors on them that would report back uh, how far it was tilting side to side and front to back. And so you could take that data and plot it all out and get yourself a contour map of the lunar surface on top of it. I, I think it's fascinating to me because of all of the engineering problems they worked out. Uh, the fact that the the central core of the rover, it was going to be super hot and bake during the lunar day, and then it was going to freeze during the lunar night. And how do we create something that can survive that? A lot of people point to the Apollo lunar rover and go, well, wait a second. You know, the, the Americans did that. And they didn't. I mean, the rover was designed uh, to work for just a few days, and it was during the lunar daytime. Uh, There was no requirement uh, during Apollo for that rover to uh, survive the lunar night and and be operable again. I mean, it was a a completely different machine. Mm -hmm. So the Soviets worked that out, this ingenious system of, of heating and cooling all in one machine. 
they worked out the system of locomotion. They worked out uh, the the safety system so that the rover would stop itself if it started uh, traversing something that was too steep or uh, headed down too steep of a slope or whatever. Uh, this uh, amazing uh, technology that went into uh, creating the wheels, you know, once again, simple, but uh, rugged and ready. Uh, they they put that thing together at a time where we really didn't understand what the lunar surface was all about. And so there was a lot of guesswork, frankly, that went into uh, traversing the lunar surface. And what are we going to build the wheels out of? And how are we going to maintain traction? And what happens if one of the wheels gets stuck? And so the Soviets, I always like to point out, they built this rover that that had eight wheels, but it could actually function with four of them completely inoperative. There was a little explosive charge in the hub of each wheel that that could be blown in case the wheel got stuck or seized up or whatever. And it would forever render it a, a passive roller, but there was enough torque in these motors that they could actually drive with 50% of the wheels inoperative. I mean, only the Soviets <laughs> they do have would, unique would build... solutions, don't they? Yeah, exactly. It's this it's a classic <laughs> Soviet additive engineering where they just keep bolting stuff on <laughs> until they've overcome the problem. Right. I mean, I, 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 a 200% safety margin on the wheels is just unbelievable. Uh, and, and the things work surprisingly well. Uh, the Soviets went through this huge process of trying to figure out what kind of driver they needed to operate this thing. And they they looked at race car drivers and they looked at farmers and they looked at taxi drivers and they looked at cyclists. And they they finally said, you know what? We don't need... A driver at all. We need someone who can look at a situation, instantly analyze it, pretty much a photographic memory, be able to make a decision in a in a snap, and then follow through on it. And at the same time, work together with four other people. And it, it was a, a program that just worked surprisingly well. So the, the Soviets will will always have my respect for pulling off something like that. So I'd, I'd probably have to say that, that Luna Cod was, was my favorite robotic space mission. What, what about you? Hey, you communist sympathizer. Um, well, I was born, <laughs> I think I was born about 20 years before you. So uh, into the heat of the Cold War and the beginning of the Space Age and so forth, and even being a, a West Coast, Southern California, Hollywood, pinko liberal in my upbringing, I have to say there was a certain tone of nationalism that went through me, uh, more than my family, I'll add. They, they, my fam I was ba basically raised by hippies and wolves, but uh, I tended to be a little more conservative <laughs> than them. That went away over time, but... So growing up during <laughs> Apollo, you know, when you're seeing these incredible missions depart as often as every 10 weeks go to go off and explore the moon. And of course, by Apollo 14, uh, when the networks realized that we weren't going to have a life and death struggle like Apollo 13, you know, they were heading up to the, the side of the crater. Uh, I think it was Cone, right? Was it Cone or Shorty? It was Cone, I think. Yep, yeah, yep, the climb up Cone crater. Yeah, and they're two thirds of the way there, and the network's cut off to soap operas. Said, okay, we, we're going back to our normally scheduled programming, and you're suddenly looking at General Hospital or The Young and the Restless or some other equally worthless piece of tripe and thinking, we have two Americans exploring the moon just 
a couple of missions after the first one there, which was a culmination of a decade-long challenge against our bitter enemy in, in the Eastern Hemisphere, and you're cutting away to soap operas? But, you know, that's what they did. Ugh, so, um, but, terrible. But I grew up during that era. It was a little bit of a, of, a, of a nationalist, I guess. So Apollo was wonderful, and then in 72 it was all over. And for a few years, we were sitting around, you know, those self-professed children of Apollo licking our wounds and feeling sorry for ourselves. And then Viking came along. And, of course, Viking had been in development for a long time as the first big big Mars lander orbiter combo mission. But um, it was becoming real now. And so I made my way down to, I wanted to go to JPL to watch a landing because I lived not far away. But that wasn't going to happen. So I went down to Caltech and tried to get in, and the auditorium was closed to everybody, everybody at press, but having grown up in the area, I kind of knew some of the back ways, so I slipped in a, a basement door and made my way up to the auditorium and got some <laughs> little bit of stink eye from the journalists there, like, who the hell are you and what are you doing here? But watching that, that landing for the back of, I think it was Ramo Auditorium at Caltech, and they had a, a, a big screen up front and a video projector and video projection wasn't then what it is now. So it was kind of purple green, but we were watching the shots of, of uh, the SFOF, the Mission Control Center at JPL and the reactions of the people when it landed and so forth. And then waiting around for that first picture. And I think that even more in a lot of ways than Apollo, just because I was, you know, at Caltech, which is part of the JPL empire, seeing that first picture come into the footpad was just transformational. So you have lots of good, solid historical and engineering reasons to love Lunacod. I think my attachment to Viking is extremely sentimental, but I saw this, this kind of purplish image come in one strip at a time, top to bottom, left to right to build up this shot of Viking staring at its feet. And some of the members of the press were grumping. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, wait, what? We're looking at a footpad, not at the horizon? What the heck? But I was just transfixed because it was the first picture from the surface of Mars. It was successfully transmitted back from a machine. And it was the culmination of all that Ray Bradbury stuff and all the movies I saw as a kid and all those goofy Saturday matinees of uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars and so forth, so forth had distilled down to this one moment of seeing that image. And then the next day, of course, we got the horizon shots and so forth. It was just a wonderful time. So, yeah, that's my sort of a schlocky sentimental version of of what you just gave me. <laughs> But but how cool was that to see that picture and go, that's Mars right now. 
or 15 minutes ago, right? But basically right now, it's like, this is Mars. The first time we had seen the surface of Mars. Yeah, and this kind of relates a little bit to something you had said a few minutes ago about Van Allen saying some of the easy stuff's been done. I mean, I feel like, so we've gotten to the end of the solar system as of this decade and and seen uh, Pluto. And it feels like, and this is this is an unfair assessment, but it feels like at least for the American program, we've picked the low-hanging fruit and some of the mid-hanging fruit. And we've done some very challenging things and very successfully. We've done, quote-unquote, Mars uh, to great effect, which not, not every nation could claim, obviously. Um, and that's amazing stuff. So I grew up at a time, and you did uh, later, but we both kind of grew up during times where this was unfolding. And it's incredibly inspiring to see these things as firsts. So uh, I was doing a talk a few years ago to a group of kids. Uh, they were, I think, aerospace graduate students in SEDS, the Society for the Exploration and Development of Space, or students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Anyway, there's a small group. And I was talking about the space race and Apollo and all that. And a couple of kids started crying down the front row. And I said, was it something I said? And they said, you have no idea how lucky you were to grow up then. And I thought about it. I thought, my God, you're right. You know, I've been sitting here bemoaning the fact that we've been waiting 50 years to go back to the moon. And yet they're reminding me that I was fortunate to have seen these things as, as you were for different programs. So I guess my thought is, what's the next wave of that? If you're an 18 year old or a 20 year old now, or even a, a, say a 10 year old, and you're looking forward to a future in something like planetary exploration, what is going to be their transformational moment? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, what I hope their transformational moment is, is finding life on another world. Mm. I would just be utterly tickled by that. And I have a friend who is a conspiracy theorist about pretty much everything from Bigfoot to the Majestic 12. <laughs> and he, yeah, and he, I think he now has come around to believing that we actually landed on the moon, but that was an uncomfortable period of three years where you'd try to have rational discussions with him and it just wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. He's a super good guy, but he just kind of had this blind spot. And he had claimed for a long time that the Spirit and Opportunity rovers were being used to cover up fossil evidence on Mars. Oh, yawn. And I, I kept trying to explain to him, I'm like, every year, the people who are running these missions have to go to Congress and beg for money. And all the space money typically goes to the man program. These people have to fight tooth and nail for every little thing. And if their rover found evidence of past life on Mars, such frankly strong evidence as, as fossils, I mean, that would be paradigm shifting. That would be a Nobel Prize for starters. That would be a blank check when it came to Mars exploration. These people would right. be able to do whatever they want. And you're trying to tell me that they are deliberately covering up that evidence for some strange reason that you can't articulate? That's just preposterous. And so it, it, it's a great question about, you know, what, what's it going to be for this next generation? I, I really hope that it is confirming 
that life exists presently on another world, something like Enceladus or Europa, I would just absolutely be tickled. I would throw a party for my entire block if that kind of thing happened. Uh, beyond that, I, I really have mixed feelings about putting humans on Mars. I think it's going to happen someday, inevitably. Uh, at this point, I honestly feel like it's it's money wasted. I think there's a lot more we can do remotely, uh, but it's tricky. There was somebody who did a study one time of efficiencies in sending humans versus the rover, and they came out with a metric. I, I don't remember exactly what the specifics of it were, but it was something like, for what takes the Curiosity rover a week, a person could do in approximately 15 minutes. However, you're going to spend something like half a trillion dollars to send those people there. And I just feel like in the meantime, you know, while we're still figuring out how to build that capsule and everybody's arguing about what form it's going to take and how we're going to get it off the planet, there's a lot more we can do in the way of remote sensing. I would be just thrilled beyond belief if we do find that fossil evidence on Mars or, or really on, on any other body. Um, but uh, if I had to pick my number one, it would be finding life on another world. That's a great answer. And and it's interesting you bring up the uh, human exploration versus robotic. I, I, I think I saw that, or at least one description of that same metric, but it was more of a casual. I was one of the project scientists saying, look, you know, you, you give a, a geologist, I believe it was a day and he'll match what a rover can do in a year. And I thought that might be a little bit of a widespread, but but it's a good point, you know, that the geologists, as we saw in that wonderful uh, episode in uh, Tom Hanks's From the Earth to the Moon, when they're, the guys are, are learning how to do lunar geology with Lee Silver out of Caltech, how geologists draw these, these inferences from things. And they're able to look at, at a broader picture and come to, to uh, they get flashes of insight right? Uh, in terms of collecting the next set of samples or what to pursue down in the landscape uh, in, in close-up proximity. Whereas for a rover, as, as we know, it takes a long time to get anywhere, a long time to look at anything. And even with the 2020 rover, with the Mars helicopter, having the pop-up capability and all that, it's really slow. So there's that. And then, of course, there's the intangible dimension of human exploration, which is, you know, noble endeavors and great expeditions of exploration and science and so forth. And that one's a little harder to quantify. But uh, I, I agree. I mean, life of any kind, anywhere, past or present, would be an incredible moment. And I think one of the things that will thrill me about it, besides just the fact on its face, is going to be watching the effect of that ripple through the global conversation and some of the ramifications for theology and so forth. Cause that's a big, even if it's just microbial life, it's a big moment because it throws a lot of long held beliefs and assumptions into a bit of a topsy turvy. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing that I think is going to happen is everybody is going to argue about it for like five <laughs> right. years straight. Exactly. Right. Over, over what exactly was found. But uh, yeah, I mean the, you know, the problem with a robot is, a robot, it was a Soviet engineer who said that, said this to me. He said, a robot cannot give you its impression, mm. which I thought just really summed things up. A robot isn't going to be 
crawling across the surface of the Mars and notice something out of the corner of its eye, like that wonderful moment on Apollo 17 when they discovered the orange soil. I mean, I, I would never expect, you know, something like Lunacod crawling across the surface of the moon. It, it did that for 10 or 11 months or whatever it was. And if there was orange soil, it drove right past. You know, it would not have noticed something like that. It it wouldn't have had the the wherewithal or the smarts or whatever you want to call it to do that. So I, I really feel like we need both. Well, not to be too obvious, but I think Lunacod was entirely black and white, wasn't it? In terms of its uh, imaging. Mm. I think. You know, I think you're right, actually. Yep, I, but I think we, you're right about that. We did that. have, I, I believe it was Spirit, wasn't it, that, that scuffed the soil and there was some white silica below and they, they did stop. They happened, were doing a wheel check or something with one of the nav cams and they looked down and saw, hey, wait a minute, that looks like salt. What the hell is that? And it turned out to be high silica content soil. So they do have those moments, but it takes months to do them, right? Uh, we've moved three yeah. inches today. Yeah, let's take another photograph. And um, <laughs> yeah, the human factor is, is a big one. I, I just hope, and I, I think it's probably near and dear to both our hearts, I hope that, that Gil Levin is alive when when that moment comes. And tell us why. I do too. I, the, you know, the, the joke is that Gil is not going to allow himself to die until life has been found on Mars because he's in his mid nineties now. Yeah. And so uh, just in case readers don't know, um, aboard the Viking landers of 1976, there were three separate life detection experiments. Uh, In my opinion, there was one that was the simplest, the most reliable and definitely gave the most consistent results. And it was an experiment that was designed by Gil Levin uh, who is still around today, as I just said. He's he's in his mid-90s, and that experiment met all of the pre-launch criteria for actually finding life on Mars, and there's a, a number of reasons, many of them good, uh, for why his results have not been generally accepted into the mainstream. And every 18 months or so, he puts out another paper as to why his results should be looked at again. Uh, His co-experimenter on that, Patricia Stratt, she just put out her own book about um, co-creating that experiment with them. So Gil sort of came up with the idea and kind of got it off the ground. Uh, But then once it was accepted for Viking, the experiment basically had to be translated into something that was flight worthy and translated from an experiment into an instrument, so something that was actually flying. And that was that was Pat's big contribution there, was, was making it real. And those two folks are still arguing to this day that, that they found life on Mars. And I have to say I agree with them. Yeah, me, me too. And we're talking, what, 42 years of discussion. And, and of course, so you read what, what Gil writes, and then you read what I think arguably you could say the person who became his sort of arch nemesis, Norm Horowitz, wrote in the same period. And and Horowitz was uh, in, he was in charge he, he was in charge overall of the life science package, and uh, if I'm if I remember correctly, and had an I don't think that's right. No, yeah, 
but he had he had an instrument of his own. Yeah, he had a he had one that was looking at uh, the possibility of photosynthesis-like processes occurring on the surface of Mars. And Levin actually was reporting to Norm Horowitz early on, and then Horowitz sort of took some inspiration in in what Gill was doing with radioactively tagging nutrients, and kind of flipped Gill's experiment around. And Gill was looking at uh, radioactive carbon gases coming off of his sample, and Norm was trying to put radioactive carbon gases into a sample and seeing if there was a, a photosynthetic-like process going on there. And Norm, what's interesting about Norm is he died in 2005, and so I was not able to work with him uh, when I was telling the story of the Viking experiments, but his right-hand man, Jerry Hubbard, was. He was still around, and I also worked with George Hobby, who was the, the third principal on that experiment. And George, eh, he looked at what I had to say and let it pass muster, so I suppose that was good. He didn't have a lot of feedback, per se. Jerry Hubbard actually rolled over on that experiment and kind of went off on it, saying that you know they didn't have any everything quite right. There were a lot of compromises that they had to make. They had to do a lot of funny math to get the results. Mm. They did the best job they could, but he would not fly it again, actually. Uh, so here we have a principal investigator who's basically saying, uh, I don't know that my experiment was that great. Uh, he was kind of beating himself up about it a little bit. But I said, well, Jerry, you know, that's how science is done. I mean, you you, you take your best shot at it. And you learn from what you did, and then you you make another one next time you go. And and Viking was never meant to be the last word in Martian life detection. Unfortunately, so far it has been. But to follow up on what you're saying about Norm Horowitz, he had a, a number of key reasons why you simply couldn't find life on Mars, why there was no way it could exist. Even though he built this experiment <laughs> and flew it on Viking, uh, he felt like Mars was uh, too cold for any liquid water. Uh, he felt like the, the pressures were too low. And there have been a, a number of barriers to Gillivan's claims that have just fallen one after the other uh, since Viking ended. We've learned so much more about Mars. And there have been no barriers, to my knowledge, that have been erected since the Vikings flew. So the, the barriers to Gill's results being accepted have, have only been falling. Yeah, and I think, um, I forget the gentleman's name, but there were a, a couple of experiments done, one in particular in the Atacama Desert, taking uh, more or less sterile soil samples and trying to test them under conditions that mimicked what Viking would have seen if the soil were perchlorate rich. And the indications, as I understand them, were that, yeah, this this could have been a life science indication, but it would have been basically stomped on by the uh, presence of these these oxidizing chemicals in the soil. But it showed a similar graph. Is this is this your recollection? It showed a graph similar to what Levine got in his instrument, which was kind of a, a sharp spike and then a weird decline that he couldn't repeat. Yeah, I remember that, and I I don't remember the specifics of it off the top of my head. I seem to remember that Klaus Beeman, who had a uh, gas chromatograph mass spectrometer aboard Viking, of course, that he ripped that apart, and there was kind of a series of nasty exchanges that went on between him and 
uh, the guy who was doing stuff in the Atacama Desert. Um, was it Navarro? The, was that his name? Uh, that's right. Navarro Gonzalez. Yeah. 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 Um, I, my recollection is that his work has been basically discredited, but I, I, I say that with an asterisk because I, I would have to go back and look at it to be certain. So I, I can't offer that as gospel. Well, I appreciate getting any gospel from you and we've, we've gone way over our assigned time and I feel like we've just gotten started. So hopefully I can drag you back in, in the new year and, and pick this up where we left off. Cause I still have, uh, probably half a page of questions we should get to. So, uh, oh, this is you're wonderful, a, Rod. Well, and you're a font of knowledge and good cheer and, and comradeship. And I appreciate that because we don't get together to talk often enough. And I, I don't know if, uh, have you gotten, uh, a ping for space fest yes this year yet this year uh not yet i'm kind of holding my breath on that so really really hoping my my lucky number comes up on that but i've not heard anything okay well i'm i'm just started chatting with them so i'll uh i'll throw our names in there and maybe if if i'm lucky we'll be able to share the stage again together because that was a lot of fun last year all right oh i really enjoyed that rod that was a real highlight for me and it was certainly a privilege to be asked so i thank you so much for that Jay, thanks very much for joining me today, and I look forward to talking to you again as soon as possible. Oh, by the way, when is your book next book coming out, approximately? Ooh, that depends on who you ask. Uh, at the pace that I'm going at right now, I'm estimating 2034, <laughs> but I think I, have a, I think I have a draft that's due in 2021, so I need to kick it into high gear. Now, if I turn in the draft in 2021, it's probably not going to be on the street until 2022. Well, see, what you're doing is building up a, a demand, and I did see today as I was uh, looking over some listings that at least one copy of Ambassadors from Earth is selling for $146. So you're you're skillfully building the value of your brand, you see. I don't understand why people are advertising the book for that price. Those are the hardback copies, and, and the hardback is, is no longer available, unfortunately. Uh, it's available in paperback for much less money. Uh, I've wanted to contact the people who are listing the the hardback at those high prices and just ask them what in the world they're thinking. Um, you well, they're pay thinking that much for it. They're thinking they can get a sucker. I actually did contact a couple of those people because they're advertising a moon book I did for hundreds of dollars signed. And I, I managed to to uh, click up a graphic of the signature, and I don't know whose it was. It wasn't mine, but it was supposedly signed by the author. So I sent a couple of nasty kind of amateur cease and desist notes and some inquiries and got nothing. So, yeah, it's just a secondary market that will probably live on long after we're dead and our brands really begin <laughs> to peak. But, you know, I've always kind of – I sort of – plan to have my career peak late in life anyway. So I figure about 10 years after I, I die would be just about right. But uh, anyway, thanks for joining me today. I do appreciate it. And I, I really hope you'll come back soon. This was wonderful, Rod. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to part three of my interview with Jay Gallantine. I'll be back next week with another compelling profile and more cool space news. Until then, always remember, be humble for you are made of earth, be noble for you are made of stars. See you next time.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.